Hello, everyone. I am so happy that you can join me for part 10 of our study through John's Gospel. I hope that you have all been able to remain safe and healthy and, above all, joyful. Before we get started, just let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Open our hearts and our minds to the work of your Holy Spirit. We pray against any and all distractions that would prevent us from receiving everything that you have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At the end of last week's lesson, I mentioned that the final three verses of chapter 2, uh, those are verses 23 through 25, those final three verses were transitional verses that serve as a, a narrative bridge from the cleansing of the temple that we read about to the encounter that we're going to read about today. If you recall, though, those three verses dealt with the nature of what we refer to as saving faith. And this is a very important distinction because all faith is not created equal. Uh, saving faith is the faith that is built upon two very important realities. First, a person must be conscious. They must be conscious of their need for forgiveness. And secondly, they have to be convicted that Jesus Christ is the one and only mediator of that forgiveness. It's a sad truth uh, that not everyone who thinks that they're going to heaven is going to actually go to heaven. At the very start of his ministry, uh, Jesus was very adamant about the dangers of shallow responses and that quick, that pseudo-conversions. Jesus was not in it for the numbers. And he probably turned more people away than he accepted. His encounter with the rich young ruler, for example, that we can read about in Matthew 19, is a perfect example of Jesus refusing to make things easy. He refuses to make things easy if doing so would compromise the truth or give someone false hope. In our passage today, we're going to be studying a, a private conversation that Jesus has with a, a prominent religious leader in Jerusalem. Uh, the man's name is Nicodemus, and, and he comes to speak with Jesus one night uh, while Jesus was still in Jerusalem for the Passover and for the feast that followed. So, if you have your Bibles ready, let's begin by reading at John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit 
is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? As John MacArthur points out in his commentary, it's unfortunate that the, the chapter breaks where it does because this section is, is logically tied to those last verses in chapter 2. See, Jesus has an unobstructed view into the hearts of men and he can rapidly discern the source and the genuineness of faith. And, and we are about to see an example of that very process at work. Nicodemus, whose name means victor over the people in Greek. Having a Greek name was, it was very common among the Jewish men of that time. Nicodemus uh, means victor over the people, and he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees, as we have talked about in the past, they were a religious party that emphasized a very strict observance of the law, and, and they were actually quite popular w- with the common people. Nicodemus, however, was not, he wasn't an ordinary Pharisee. The phrase ruler of the Jews that we find at the end of verse 1, that indicates that Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the supreme governing body of Israel, subject to the Roman authority, of course. The Sanhedrin, although they would trace their lineage all the way back to the 70 elders who had assisted Moses, although they would would trace it back that far, they had actually not come into existence until somewhere between the Persian rule and the Greek rule in Israel. Comprised of 70 members led by a high priest, uh, they had a wide-ranging power in, in civil, criminal, and, of course, religious matters, well, still being under the ultimate authority of Rome. For, for example, although the Sanhedrin were free to make arrests, uh, conduct trials, and, and pronounce sentences, the power to impose capital punishment, that was reserved solely for the Romans. The fact that Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, that probably explains why he chose to approach Jesus at night. Perhaps he he didn't want his visit to imply that Jesus had the approval of the entire Sanhedrin, nor would he have wanted to uh, face any criticism from his fellow members who may have had a less than favorable view of what Jesus was doing. And besides, nighttime, it would have been a, a better time for conversation, as both he and Jesus would have been busy during the daylight hours. Well, verse 2 tells us that Nicodemus used a very special term, uh, rabbi, when he approaches Jesus. You see, Nicodemus was an eminent teacher and and a respected authority, and he treats Jesus as an equal. And this is in very, very sharp contrast to the suspicion and the hostility that many of the religious leaders expressed towards Christ. Nicodemus, and apparently some others, because we notice the use of the we pronoun, 
Apparently, Nicodemus and some others accepted that Jesus had come from God. Even though Jesus had not received the proper official rabbi training, it is clear that Nicodemus uh, knew that no one would be able to perform the signs that Jesus had performed without some kind of divine help. And we can't be sure uh, what signs Nicodemus is referring to here. Uh, perhaps it was the temple cleansing. Maybe he had heard about the, the miracle at the wedding in, in Cana. Or it, it could very well have been one of the countless miracles that Jesus performed that aren't recorded in Scripture. It is also quite likely that, that Nicodemus had heard John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus and taking that with, with the signs that Jesus performed, Nicodemus may have even uh, started to wonder if Jesus was in fact the Messiah. But Jesus is not interested in discussing the signs that, that result in superficial faith. Instead, he, he gets right down to the real issue, the transformation of Nicodemus's heart by the new birth. In verse 3, Jesus tells him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Now, we've talked about this before. When we see the phrase, truly, truly, a phrase that only appears in John's Gospel, it, and we also mentioned it's a translation of the Hebrew word, Amen. Whenever we see truly, truly, we know that it's a signal. It's a signal for us to pay attention because what's coming next is very important. No one is getting into the kingdom of God unless they are born again. There is a new birth through, through which God imparts eternal life to those who were, uh, like it says in Ephesians 2.1, dead in their trespasses and sin. God takes these dead men walking, people just like you and I, and does a most remarkable thing. Listen to how Peter describes it in 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The kingdom of God, as... as uh, Jesus uses it here. It, it's not referring to the universal aspect of, of the kingdom. You know, God's sovereign rule over all creation. Like in uh, Psalm 103, where David writes, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. That's, that's not the kingdom that, that Jesus is referring to. What Jesus is referring to here is a much more specific Kingdom. Jesus is referring to the kingdom of salvation. The, the kingdom of salvation is a spiritual realm where only those who have been born again by divine power through faith live under the kingship of God mediated through his Son. Nicodemus, like the rest of his fellow Jews, they eagerly anticipated the day when they would enter that glorious realm. Well, unfortunately for them, they had the wrong idea about how to get there. 
They thought that being descendants of Abraham, uh, diligently following the law, and performing certain external religious rituals, primarily circumcision, they thought by, by doing all of that, that they would have a, a guaranteed spot in that kingdom. That was not going to be the case, and, and Jesus makes that abundantly clear. It didn't matter how good you were or how good you wanted to be. There was no amount of religious activity that would get you into the kingdom. Now, can you imagine for a moment how, how Nicodemus must have felt hearing Jesus say these things? Listen to how R.C.H. Lenski describes it in his commentary. What a blow for Nicodemus. His, his being a Jew gave him no part in the kingdom. His being a Pharisee, esteemed holier than other people, that availed him nothing. His membership in the Sanhedrin and his fame as one of its scribes, it went for naught. The rabbi from Galilee calmly tells him that he is not yet in the kingdom. All on on which he had built his hopes throughout a long and arduous life, here sank into ruin and became a little worthless heap of ashes. Well, in verse 4, Nicodemus, understandably shocked, uh, he attempts to get some clarity by asking Jesus a couple of questions. How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a, a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? Now, Nicodemus, he was a very learned man, and and he most certainly was not so obtuse as to take Jesus' words literally. He knew that Jesus was not talking about being physically reborn, and his reply was in the context of the Lord's analogy. Nicodemus was asking how, how on earth could he be expected to start over from the beginning? Jesus was telling him that that entrance into salvation was was not a matter of addition, but rather a matter of subtraction. There was nothing that he could add to top off his religious activities. Salvation was contingent on canceling everything and starting all over again. Well, at the same time, Nicodemus couldn't grasp what that implied, and he openly wondered about the impossibility of what Jesus had told him. If salvation, if salvation was not obtainable through the lifetime of works that he had accomplished, what was he to do? If his entrance into salvation depended upon a spiritual rebirth, something that was certainly impossible through human efforts, what hope was there for for a self-righteous Pharisee. In verse 5, Jesus makes no effort to minimize the demands of the gospel, but he attempts to answer Nicodemus's confusion by elaborating on that truth that we read back in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
Well, I discovered that there have been a number of explanations put forth as to the exact meaning of that phrase, born of water and spirit. But I believe that the best answer is revealed if we look ahead just a little bit, look ahead to verse 10, where Jesus expresses dismay that Nicodemus, as a teacher of Israel, doesn't understand what he's saying. With, with that in mind, I, I believe it's reasonable to assume that born of water and spirit was something that Nicodemus would have and, and should have been familiar with. Water and spirit had been used symbolically in the Old Testament as a reference to spiritual renewal. For example, in, in Ezekiel, it is used in describing Israel's restoration to the Lord through the new covenant. Listen to this beautiful passage from Ezekiel 36. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Regeneration is an Old Testament truth. And, and Jesus surely knew that Nicodemus would have been acquainted with that exact passage from Ezekiel. With that in mind, the, the point that Jesus was trying to make would have been unmistakable. No one enters God's kingdom without a spiritual washing of the soul, and that is only accomplished through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God. In Titus 3.5 we read, He saved us, not because of works done by us in in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Jesus further emphasizes this truth in in verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Spiritual transformation is only possible through the Spirit, just as human nature, the flesh, can only produce flesh. Even if a physical rebirth were possible, it would only result in more flesh, and and not the spiritual rebirth that is required for entrance into God's kingdom. This spiritual regeneration is entirely from God, and If you don't believe me, just read Romans 3. It's entirely from God, and it doesn't require any human effort whatsoever. Even though they were based on Old Testament truth, the words of Jesus were totally contrary to everything that Nicodemus had been taught. He had been conditioned to believe that that he could earn his own salvation, and and he was finding it really, really hard to, to accept the fact that he'd been wrong. Jesus, quite aware of the the conflict that was going on in in Nicodemus' head, uh, in verse 7 and 8, he presses the point with an imperative followed by an illustration. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. 
So it is with, with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You must be born again. A, a statement in the imperative voice. It removes all ambiguity about the necessity of being born again. This is not a suggestion that's up for individual interpretation and application. It is a command. If Nicodemus truly wanted to enter the kingdom of God, then he would have to get over his astonishment and disappointment at at being so wrong and seek to be born again. Everything that he had once regarded as righteous works were, in the words, in the words of the Apostle Paul, they were no more than rubbish. And then Jesus illustrates his point with a familiar example from nature. Uh, the wind blows where it wishes and, and you hear its sound, but, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born in the Spirit. The wind, as you know, it it can't be controlled. We are able to get a a general sense of its direction and, and we can see its effects, but we can never say for certain what it's going to do next. So it's, so it is with the Holy Spirit. The sovereign works of God can't be controlled or, or predicted, yet we can We can see the effects displayed in the transformed lives of those who are born in the Spirit. As John MacArthur says in his commentary, though Nicodemus may have been a renowned teacher, he was a poor learner. (laughs) His question in verse 9, how can these things be, that reveals that he hadn't really made a whole lot of progress since verse 4, and Jesus calls him out on it. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? I can almost, I can almost see Jesus shaking his head as, as, as he's saying this. I, I can imagine him thinking, wow, if even the teachers don't get it, what are the chances that, that the regular folks will understand? The use of the definite article, the, before the word teacher, that indicates that that Nicodemus was a recognized, established teacher in Israel. And because of that, Jesus found it inconceivable that a prominent scholar could be so ignorant of the, the foundational New Covenant teaching from the Old Testament. It wasn't like this knowledge was being kept secret. Listen to Paul's words from 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now we all know that that Timothy wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't a member of the Sanhedrin or a great teacher of Israel. He was just an ordinary guy. An ordinary guy who was able to read and understand the word of God without the external legalistic trappings that had crippled the hearts of the religious leaders and had blinded them to the revelations of God. Nicodemus' ignorance exemplified the the spiritual bankruptcy that plagued Israel at the time. 
As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 10, the religious leaders of the day, although they had a zeal for God, it wasn't a zeal that was based on knowledge. Instead, because of their ignorance of God's righteousness, they created their own path to righteousness that that glorified themselves and, and their own works. The resulting system, besides being absolutely useless in the pursuit of salvation, it demonstrated a lack of submission to God's will that was no less than an outright rebellion. Although there is there's nothing in the in this passage that, that indicates that he was converted that night, and as we're going to learn next week when we read verse 11, there's a very strong implication that he was not converted that night. Nicodemus would never forget the conversation that he had with Jesus. We're going to meet up with Nicodemus again. Uh, first in chapter 7, where he stands up and, and boldly defends Jesus against the Sanhedrin. And, and then we're going to run into him again in chapter 16, where he assists Joseph of Arimathea in, pre- in preparing Jesus' body for, for burial. At some point between this nighttime conversation and the crucifixion, Nicodemus comes to a saving faith. He was finally able to understand sovereign grace, and and he experienced the reality of the new birth. From our perspective, the, the idea of being born again is kind of a given. In fact, several denominations within evangelical circles use the term born-again Christian to describe themselves. Uh, and that's a practice that, honestly, I, I find slightly redundant, <laughs> seeing as how all Christians, according to what we've just read this morning, all Christians have experienced a, a spiritual rebirth. Being reborn in the Spirit is, is part and parcel to accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And, and for most of us, our, our acceptance of Jesus was, was followed by a water baptism that publicly declared our decision. Being born again, to me, it, it meant freedom. It meant that, that I was free to leave my old life behind. It, it meant that I was free from having to carry the weight of guilt and, and shame. It, it meant that I was free to, to hand the steering wheel over to Jesus and stop doing what I thought was right. It meant that I was free to live for something that was so much bigger than I had ever imagined. As you head into the week, Take some time to to think about what being uh, reborn has meant to you. What has a life in the Spirit brought to you that you had never thought possible? Think about the places you have been and and the people that you have met. Think about the, the differences that were made in your family, at your job, or among your friends. Think about how amazing it is how amazing it is to to know that you are loved and accepted and that you have a place in heaven. And then, 
I want you to think about the person that, that made it all possible and thank him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, where would we be without you? We marvel at your mercy and we are humbled by your grace. Thank you for doing for us which, that which we could never, even in a thousand lifetimes, do for ourselves. As we prepare for communion, let our hearts be turned to you in gratitude for the new lives that we have been given and for the glorious life to come. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for being with me today. As always, I, I continue to pray that, that the Lord blesses you and, and keeps you and that he's gracious unto each and every one of you. I pray that he turns his face upon you and, and just makes it shine and, and grants you his peace, the peace that, that passes all understanding. Have a wonderful week. I love you all. Bye. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. And probably like you, when I read that passage about that event in Scripture, I, I have this mental picture in my mind of, you know, the joy and the happiness of everyone when Jesus arrived. You know, everyone, you know, waving uh, palm branches and, and laying down cloaks on the, on the path that he took. And it seemed like that would be just the appropriate uh, reception for our Lord. But then I contrast that with John in the first chapter, you know, when it talked about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and everything that's been made was made through Him, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then we get to one of the more pointed verses in the Bible, at least to me personally. He came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. Now some of his followers may have been thinking along the same lines, this joyous event when Jesus got there, but Jesus knew better. He pulled his 12 guys aside. On, and uh, in Mark 10, it says this, while they were on their way up to Jerusalem, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And in three days later, he will rise. On the night before these events took place, Jesus started something new with his disciples. And we carry that tradition on when we take communion on Sunday mornings. Jesus, the Lord Jesus himself, he took bread and he gave thanks and he said, this represents my body that I want you to remember. So let's take this together. And then he took the cup, again gave thanks. He said, this is my blood, which is poured out for the many.
for the remission of our sins. Let's take this cup together. Father, we are so grateful. And we just can't thank you enough. My prayer is simple, Father. Just a simple thank you is all that I can say. Lord, we receive you in, your, in our hearts because we love you and we're grateful to you. Thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, make a joyful noise in this house. Make a joyful noise.